Okay, good morning. We are carrying on our uh, series on the book of Ephesians. So I'm gonna give you a quick little introduction, remind you where we are in this series, and we're gonna dive in to a passage in chapter two. So you can think about it this way. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, it, it, it's a great summary statement of the gospel. And the word gospel is a word we use a lot in our church. It literally means good news. Uh, it's almost in the sense when you go to the doctor and you're in the waiting room and he opens that door after he knocks a few times and he says, I've got the test results. Uh, the assessment is back. I'm here to deliver the news. And the good doctor will always give you the bad news before the good news. Well, Paul does the same thing. And that's really what Ephesians 2 is. He starts with the bad news. He says, natural man okay, is alienated, hostile, separated, divided from God. And so Paul gives us the bad news first. And really, this all began way back in the Garden of Eden. Because when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they ate the fruit, sin entered the world. And it's the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Because until this point, here, here's how you could describe creation, especially in the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. Uh, it was harmonious. It was blessed. It was good. And so in the Garden of Eden, for a temporary time, Adam and Eve experienced a perfect relationship with God, with each other, and also with themselves. But when they disobey God and rebel and eat the fruit, sin, it affects, it taints, it disrupts everything. And so from then on, our relationship with God is disrupted. And our relationship with each other is disrupted as well. Now, if you remember this summer, I did a series on the Beatitudes and one of the Beatitudes we hit is that we talked about blessed is the peacemakers. Okay, so there's going to be some similarities uh, with the sermon I'm giving this morning. But one of the things I mentioned, I said, I said if you actually look at human history, uh, people have been keeping track, historians, they, they would basically say we've got about 3,400 years of human history. And they would say this, we've only experienced the absence of war for 268 that means that less than 8% of human history has been marked by peace. So I actually think you could actually make the case if you were trying to find one descriptor, one adjective to describe human nature or human society, you could use a word like divisive, hostile, or aggressive. And it's against this backdrop that Paul says, we have a gospel, we have a good news, and it's a gospel of peace. Okay? And that's what Ephesians 2 is all about. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is this classic, amazing text. And it starts with this, but God. And then Paul transitions into the good news. And so the bad news is this, is that we're separated from God. And then Paul says in verse 9, but God makes us right with him. In fact, if you ask like a typical American Christian, what is the good news of the gospel? What would they say? My sins are forgiven. I'm made right with God. And that's true. Okay, that's a good answer. That's a right answer. You would pass the test. But the gospel is not less than that. Guess what? It's more than that. Because here's what we're going to see. There's a vertical dimension to the gospel. That the blood of Jesus makes me right with God. But there's also a horizontal aspect or dynamic. That the gospel not only makes me right with God, it makes me what? makes me right with others. In other words, the blood of Jesus makes me right with God, but also right with others. 
Let's take it, take it from another angle real quick. You can think about people who are giving a testimony. Okay, so very often at church we'll have uh, just normal everyday members come up and they testify, they witness about how they've been made right with God. And usually they say something like this. I used to be jacked up, messed up, addicted, aimless, purposeless, but God, okay, made me whole. You with me? But there's also a second witness to the power of the gospel, and you want to know what it is? It's a group of people who would never naturally get along, who experience and become, through Jesus Christ, a people of peace. They experience a supernatural unity and an uncommon bond. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, in, in about a month, I'll have been in Carrollton and King's Chapel for 14 years. And I'll never forget my first Sunday at KCP, okay? The sanctuary wasn't quite as nice. There were some different people in here. But I busted in. It was a typical Sunday in the fall. And I think the night before, it was a Saturday night, there was some incredible knockdown, drag out SEC matchup. It was probably like LSU, Alabama or something like that. It was like an overtime classic. And so I, I walk through that front door and I just assume I see these, this group of men that they're talking what? They're talking ball, right? SEC ball. This is Carrollton, Georgia. And so I'm doing what I normally do, shaking hands, introducing myself, chit-chatting. And so I bust into this group of guys. I say, hey guys, what'd you think about that ball game last night? And I'll never forget this one guy looks at me. He said, ball game? What ball game? He, was, he says, I was actually tending my bees last night. I thought to myself, I, I don't know if I'm in the right place, okay? And I know your minds are wandering. You're like, who was the, you know, what is the identity of the mysterious beekeeper? Well, we got a lot of beekeepers in this room, so it could be one of many people. But what in the world would make me stick it out for 14 years? What in the world could connect beekeepers and ball players? It's the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of peace. So read with me as we go to Ephesians 2. Verses 11 through 16. Paul says this, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both one and broken down in his flesh by the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in his ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we're going to make three points this morning. We live in a divided world, but we have a reconciling Savior, and therefore we should be a united church. So we live in a divided world. You know, depending on, uh, you know, where you get your cable news, what you see on social media, it would seem like we're more divided than ever. You look at our political system, we've got two parties. These two parties seem to be moving into more, more extreme positions. It's harder than ever to work across the aisle. You listen to economists and they say the middle class is disappearing. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. 
Even things that in, in generations past we would just say is a matter of preference, like your musical taste, you might like classical or rap or country or rock. Now that's a matter of debate, right? One is better than the other. We used to have discussions about education, whether you should go to public or private or homeschool, and now that's a hill to die on. We've lost the ability to have a civil discourse, right? Even in matters of preference, you can't just appreciate Michael Jordan and LeBron James anymore, right? You can't just say they're the two best basketball players that have ever played the game. No, you have to pick one, okay? And you gotta hate the other one. It's one or the other. We live in a day and age of polarization. Think of the social unrest that we experience right now on topics like race and gender and the economy and even COVID, right? You're either a masker or anti-masker, vaxxer or anti-vaxxer. And usually these issues, they lead to shouting matches and then become these hot topic debates. Well, here's the good news, believe it or not, okay, Division is not unique to the United States. It's not unique to our generation. We're going to go back to the original context, but if you think about it, Paul was a Jewish minister ministering to what type of people? To Gentiles. And believe it or not, there was immense contempt and hostility and division that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the Bible times. So I'll give you a couple examples. Most of you probably start your day or maybe you start your meal with a standard, simple prayer, okay? What's like the classic Southern prayer before we eat? God is good, God is great. Let us thank him. Okay, just rattle it off, there we go. Okay, but, but, but it's something polite, it's something normal. Well, this is how often many male Jews would start their day, they would pray this prayer. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. You like that start? Sounds good, that checks out. But listen to what happens next. Who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman? Do you know that it was actually unlawful for a Jewish person to help a Gentile give birth to a Gentile, another Gentile? And why is that? Because you're bringing a Gentile into the world. There, there was very rare kind of um, um, mar- intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, if a Jew and Gentile got married right before the wedding ceremony, they, they would actually host a symbolic funeral. And here's what this communicated, that this son or this daughter, you're dead to me. You're not part of the family. You don't even exist. In fact, most Jews, they would say this, that, that the only benefit, the only good of a Gentile is their fuel for the fire of hell. Their only eternal consequence is that they can burn in hell and make hell extra hot. And we see this in verse 11. Do you notice this, that Paul actually uses air quotes in verse 11? He says, the circumcised point out the uncircumcised. And here's what he's referring to. The Old Testament law actually required that Jews would be circumcised. And so when Paul refers to the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law, and you'll actually find 613 laws in the Old Testament, and a lot of them involve circumcision, but they covered a lot of ground. I mean, there was dietary laws, dress code laws, washing laws, and usually what they would do is they would separate people from clean to unclean, from pure to impure, and, 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 and Paul picks up on this. Now, now, just let me point out one thing, okay? 
the problem was not the law. The problem was how the Jewish people handled the law, related to the law, approached the law. See, God originally designed the law so that the nation of Israel can maintain a distinct and holy identity. Do you remember what God tells Father Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel? He says, I want you to be, I want to bless you so you can what? Bless the nations. And so this is why God gives the nation of Israel the law. He's saying, I'm going to bless you so that you can humbly serve the surrounding nations. And do you see what the nation of Israel did? They twisted it. They got it twisted. They took the law and they used it to build themselves up. It became a source of ethnic pride and it became a source of division. And that's not what God originally intended. So just to summarize the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, it was marked by division. There was relational hostility. There was division in their hearts. And this division actually extended to, to the very blueprint and structure of public worship. Okay, let's talk about the temple real quick. I actually got a slide for us. This is a 3D rendering of the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was a place of, uh, of holy worship because what it symbolized or represented was the very dwelling place of God, the very dwelling place of God. So people would travel from all over to come and worship and experience the very manifest presence of God. And there were three courts in the temple, and you, got, you can actually see this in the diagram. Uh, the very inner court was the temple for the priest or the court of the priest. The next one out was for Jewish men. The next one out was for Jewish women. And then outside of this big wall, guess what? It was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles, you can see it, okay? There's a big wall, okay? So they're separated, but it's also beneath. It's 20 steps below the courts for the Jews. So here's what we see in the very structure of the temple, okay? Is that the Gentiles were separated, but beneath the Jews. Do you see that? There's some symbolism there. Anybody want to guess what this wall was called that segregated the worship? Anybody want to guess? Take a stab at it. It was literally called the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul mentions it. Let's go to the next slide. This is actually something that archaeologists have uncovered and discovered. It is a stone, okay? It is a rock that was taken from the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I don't expect you guys to know Greek. I've honestly forgotten most of my Greek, but here's what it says. It says, no foreigner is allowed past this point on penalty of, anybody want to guess? Death. It was a capital offense for a Gentile to worship with the Jews in the temple. Now, here's what I want you to see, okay? If you, do, if you take pride in anything other than Jesus Christ, it will separate you from people and cause you to look down on them. Do you see that? If you take pride, if you find your sense of purpose and identity in anything other than Jesus Christ, it will inevitably lead you down a path where you look down on people and you separate from them. So think about like the middle school, high school lunchroom, right? Go back to those insecure days. You probably took pride in your tribe, your group. I'm a jock. I look down on the brainiacs, right? And the people who had great test scores and good GPAs, they look down on, on the athletes and so they sit together. And you got the band over here, you got the theater over here, you got the future farmers of America. But oftentimes we divide in the middle school lunchroom, we separate and we look down. Okay? And this isn't just something we leave behind in middle school, is it? 
So just think about whatever your source of pride is. You could be just say, look, I'm all about, I'm all about preserving the earth. I go green, I recycle, I hike all the time. You start to look down on people who, who, who maybe are wasteful and don't recycle and spend too much time watching TV. Maybe you take pride in the fact that you come from you know, your, your Southern heritage or you're a Georgian or Carrolltonian. You start to separate from people from the North, people who aren't insiders, people who aren't born and raised here. Maybe you take pride in your education. And so you're a doctorate, you look down on people who just got masters. You're college educated, you look down on those who just have a GED. This is really the root, the source, the foundation of any hateful, divisive ism that we experience in our society today. Think about it. All of the isms, racism, sexism, classism, it's simply elevating my gender, my class, my race, and separating from those who are different than me. And so once again, okay, here's what the Bible understands. James 4, 1 through 3, James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We see the source of division in the world, it starts with a divided heart. Finding our sense of purpose in anything other than Jesus forces us to lift ourselves up, push others down, and we separate. But here's the good news, we have a reconciling savior. We have a reconciling Savior. If you remember in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when Paul makes that turn and that pivot, he goes from the bad news to the good news. It hinges on one phrase, but God. Look in verse 13. Paul repeats himself and he says, but now. He says, but now. And he says, Jesus has accomplished something negative and positive on the cross. What has Jesus done negatively? Verse 14 says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now think about this, that wall that I just showed you, the word broken down, it literally means destroy, it means annihilate, reduce to a rubble, ground to dust. And Paul uses the past tense, he says it's done, it's been accomplished, it's already happened. Now we got some historians in the room, you're probably thinking to yourself, do you know this? Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians around 40 AD, and the temple wasn't destroyed until when? 70 AD. Well done from our trivia masters up front. The Romans actually destroyed the temple. And so you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, even though that wall stands physically, it's been destroyed spiritually. That wall may be erect, but it has been broken down by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he moves to verse 15. And he gives another negative, and he says Jesus has ab also abolished the law of commandments. And so now, now he's saying, he's referencing these ceremonial laws that we find in the Old Testament, that it sounds like you're going to be reading over the next couple weeks in the KCP reading plan, okay? And so he's not referring to the Ten Commandments, okay? So this isn't like freedom to go murder somebody, okay? But he's referring to the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, the laws about diet and cleanliness. He's saying those have been removed, they've been abolished. And do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying any division, it could be by race, it could be by class, it could be by sex, politics, could be about the vaccine, but any division is a sinful attempt to rebuild what Jesus has already destroyed. Do you get that? 
Any division, any hostility, any separation is a sinful attempt to rebuild what Jesus has already destroyed. Now you might be thinking to yourself, that's pretty progressive. That's pretty cool. I thought Christians were supposed to be old and antiquated and regressive. Don't all Christians, aren't they all just white American Fox News watching men? A little prejudice, misogyny. Here's what's really interesting, because I know we got a lot of people who are just checking out Jesus and the gospel. This is actually what makes Christianity unlike any other world religion. Do you know this? From a cultural perspective, Christianity and the gospel is perfectly portable. There's no official language in Christianity. There's no official headquarters that you can point to on a map. And Christianity can go to every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, and it affirms certain things about that culture, but it also rejects. Christianity is perfectly portable to every, portable to every culture. Second, did you know this? Okay, That if you have a global perspective, believe it or not, Georgia and Alabama are not the center of the global church, okay? A white male is not the face of Christendom. Actually, do you know where the church is growing the most? Latin America and Central Africa. And if you wanted to have a visual of what a typical Christian would look like, it would have to actually be a Latina or African-American woman, okay? And then third, what we see right here is that Jesus, when it comes to peace, to unity and reconciliation, he doesn't just post about it. He doesn't just complain about it. He doesn't just tweet about it. He doesn't just march or protest. What does he do? He sacrifices his life to remove prejudice. Remember the the typical prayer that a Jewish male would start his day with? Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile slave or woman. Did you know that in another letter that Paul writes, he says this in Galatians 3, He says this, this might ring a bell. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. It turns this prayer upside down. And Paul is not removing our culture. Paul's not setting aside our class or gender. He's saying this, you're no longer defined by these things. They're not your source of identity because all of us have a new identity, new source, and that's in Jesus Christ. So that's the negative. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall. Jesus abolishes the law of commands. And then positively, it says this in verse 15. He creates in himself how many new men? Is it two? No, it's one new man. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Jesus is not just trying, he's not in the business of just making new lives. He's making new societies. He's creating new communities. He's all about a new, united human race. Now there's two words, and there's two uh, versions of new in the Greek. One is neos, and one is kainos. Neos means this, new in time, new in origin. It means a little better, an upgrade, the latest version. It's like when you get your iPhone, and it says, do you want the new iOS, okay? And you gotta click yes, maybe some of you don't. But it's not a big change, is it? It's just a little bit better. Maybe it moves a little bit faster, okay? It replaces the old. But there's another word for new, and this is the word Paul uses right here in Ephesians 2. When he talks about the new man, he uses the word kainos. And this means new in nature, new in quality. 
This is the difference. I mean, think about correspondence or communication. This is the difference in saying, I'm going to write a letter to grandma and grandpa versus I'm going to FaceTime them. It's totally new. It's transformed. This is the difference in maybe in like a mode of transportation saying, I'm going to ride a horse versus I'm going to drive a Lamborghini. Okay? They're both transportation, but it's totally new. It's totally different. And this is the word that Paul uses. He's saying this one new man, it's brand new. It's radical. It's transformed. The world has never seen anything like it. So in other words, Paul is saying the blood of one man, Jesus Christ, creates one brand new man. So let me ask you a question real quick. I want everybody to think about this. Who do you have more in common with? Who do you have more in common with according to this passage? Someone who has the identical age, race, gender, economic status, and political party, but doesn't know Jesus? Or someone who's the exact opposite, but have trusted in Christ? Who do you have more in common with? Y'all can answer this one. All right, the one who's a Christ follower. And so here's what this means for the church. We should be marked by unity, but also diversity. We're united because Jesus comes first. He comes before America. Being a dogs fan, being a banker, being a vegan, the way I vote, all those things are a distant second. It also means this about the church. We should be inclusive because joining this tribe, being a part of this group, this club, it's not based on merit, achievement, status, It's got nothing to do with my last name or how much I got in my bank account. It's totally inclusive, but it's also exclusive. There's just one price of admission. There's just one way in, and it's through who? It's through Jesus Christ. And so as I look back at my life, I I can actually say there are certain friendships and relationships I have that I can honestly say, if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, I would never be a friend of this person. Okay? I, I think about one guy I remember leading a mission trip to Brisbane, Australia, And so, uh uh-oh, time to wake up. So I'm in Brisbane, Australia, and we're doing a mission trip on a college campus. And uh, they start assigning us to go to different dorms. And it just so happened I got assigned to this dorm. And I remember the first guy I met introduced himself. And I'm not going to try to do his accent. But he says, my name is Little Monster. I said, okay, that's pretty interesting. Okay, Naturally, hey, I'm curious, bud. How'd you get that name? And he said, because I love Lady Gaga so much. Okay, Lady Gaga is a little bit of an out there, you know, musician, maybe, for those of you, you know, who are octogenarians, whatever that word was. <laughs> Let me just say this, I, I, I am not Lady Gaga's intended audience. And I said, oh goodness. And so this guy was into anime, he had purple hair, and he went by Little Monster, but believe it or not, this guy was really interested in Jesus Christ, and over the course of the summer, he sat down, we had multiple gospel conversations, and he trusted in Jesus, and he got baptized, I just remember thinking to myself, never in a thousand years did I think I would have a bond, a brotherhood, a connection to Little Monster, but Jesus unites us. I remember a guy about eight years ago who used to sit in that back, uh, that back pew. His name is David Bailey. He played football here. He grew up in Brunswick, Georgia, a very segregated neighborhood. He came from the hood. When he got to our football team, he was very closed off. He was very guarded. He was very reserved. He played running back for us. He was a single father. He'd been through a really hard life. And he started showing up to a Bible study. 
uh, I was leading. And slowly but surely, he would actually lower his defenses. He actually came to faith as a junior. And he said, Webb, he said, I need to join a church. I said, will you come with me? He said, I've never been to a white church before. I said, come on. Not only did he join our church, he actually joined a community group with the Hines. And I remember when he graduated, it was just a beautiful picture of the unity and diversity of the church because he had brothers and sisters that were blood, but also in the church that were joining together. And he still calls me to this day and he says, Webb, he said, you know, I never had a white friend before I met you. I said, yeah. But he said, you're my brother now and I love you. And that's how we hang up the phone each and every time we talk on the phone. The blood of Jesus unites us. It brings us together. This is our final point. Final point, we're a united church. United church. So the bad news, we live in a dividing world, but we have a reconciling Savior. Therefore, how do we respond? We should be a united church. We're going to flip over to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. This is where we get to the application section of the sermon. What do we do with this? How should we live? How should we act? Well, here's our answer. Paul says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond in peace. So here's what I want you to think about just for a moment. For those of you who have decided to follow Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, how does God the Father view you? He views you as what? as perfect, as righteous, as justified, because you have taken on the record of Jesus, and when you stand before God, he sees perfection. Am I right? But are you actually perfect in your thoughts, and your behavior, and the way you treat people? No, absolutely not. God views you as perfect. God views you as righteous, and so we're called to act and live in a righteous manner. And do you see Paul is making the exact same point? He says, when God sees the church, this community, he sees unity. He sees oneness. Therefore, go be one. Be united. And the expression that Paul gives us is be eager to maintain the unity. Now, here's what a, uh, a commentator would say about this expression. So this is someone who is a scholar. He's got a PhD. He's way, way smarter than me. And this is how he unpacks this statement, be eager to maintain the unity. Read with me. This is my one long quote for the sermon. He says this, it's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his strength, his attitude. The imperative move of the participle found in the Greek text it excludes passivity, quietism, and a wait-and-see attitude or diligence, tempered by all-deliberate speed. Now notice the exclamation points. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. He's pounding his fist on the table. So here's what Paul is saying. When it comes to unity, spare no effort. Wholehearted. Be dogged. It's kind of like this when I think about spare no effort. I think about a dinner I had about a year ago with a buddy of mine who sold a business and had a big payday. And so we had a celebratory dinner. And he said this right before we started, started ordering, this is on me, spare no expense. 
And what is he saying? I'm not holding anything back on my credit card. So get the best wine, get the best appetizer, get two desserts, okay? We had this phenomenal meal. I'm sparing no expense. I think about last night, while you guys were probably chilling at home, staying dry, we were at a West Georgia football game, just grinding in the rain. Ain't that right, Noah, my ball boy? And at one point, West Georgia goes down a touchdown, it's pouring rain. And we had this passionate captain of the football team, and he just started walking up and down the sideline, screaming in the rain. It was this epic moment. Everything you got, don't give up. We got to finish the game. He was calling his teammates not to hold anything back. This is the same force and passion that Paul is delivering. And you notice this? We should be eager to maintain what? What are we focused on? Is it winning arguments? Is it being right? Is it making our points? Is it raising our volume? No, the eagerness we're supposed to have is on being united. So how do we do this? And this is where we'll wrap it up. We gotta do two things. First off, we gotta show the character of Christ. And then second, we gotta remember the cross of Christ. So this is what we get in Ephesians 4. We get a list of characteristics, a list of attributes. And they're all really describing Jesus Christ. First off, Paul mentions humility. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna rattle through this list, give you a sense of the original language and the definition of these words. But humility means having a low mind. It's a sober and accurate view of yourself. It means I'm willing to empty myself, to be a servant. It means I'm more focused on the worth and values of others as opposed to myself. Second, Paul mentions being gentle. The word gentle actually means strength and power under control. This is actually the same word they would use for a domesticated animal. So think about it. You know, if you saw a lion or tiger or bear that's been domesticated, this is a vicious beast, an apex predator, and yet it's gentle. It's withholding. It's restraining its strength. It's not trying to crush or destroy It's just living at peace. Third, Paul mentions patience. Now pay attention to this definition. This is the literal definition. It means long-suffering with aggravating people. Not long-suffering with nice people, long-suffering with aggravating people. Because I'd be willing to bet during this sermon, you're probably on board with most of it, but you're thinking, well, what about these people? They vote different, they think different, they dress different, they smell different. Surely this doesn't apply to these people. And Paul says, not so fast. Patience is long-suffering with aggravating people. And that's why Paul mentions bearing. Do you see this? Bearing with one another in love. Paul's getting real. He's getting practical. See, sometimes in in, in our society, when we talk about peace and reconciliation and unity, we get a little pie in the sky, don't we? We sound like Miss America pageants. I just want world peace. And Paul's saying, no, if you really want peace and unity, it's like bearing a burden. It's heavy. It's hard. It's tough. This word bear is also the same word they use to describe a roof. Think of the purpose of a roof, of this sanctuary or your very own home. It protects you from the elements. It takes a beating from the rain and sleet and storms. That's what it means to love one another. It means it's uncomfortable. It's often a heavy task. And because oftentimes what you're doing is you're inviting discomfort and misunderstanding into your world. 
Just think about it this way, okay? Guess who I don't get in arguments with? Guess who I don't misunderstand? White, 36-year-olds, who are married and middle class, okay? We usually see pretty, pretty much eye to eye. They're pretty easy to communicate and understand, right? Because we all grew up on the same movies, we listen to the same music. But anytime you try to bring unity to people who are different than you, you're inviting miscommunications and misunderstandings into your world. It gets uncomfortable. But Paul leaves us with one final word. He says, you gotta love, you gotta love. Seek the welfare of another. So it starts here, we gotta be Christ-like and show the, the character of Jesus. But Paul says, finally, we gotta remember the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, we'll look at one final verse in Colossians. It's a parallel passage. It says this, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of, his cro- blood of the cross. Now we've already seen this. Do you realize the lengths that Jesus went to to bring peace and unity and reconciliation? He spilled his blood. Ephesians 2, Paul describes Jesus as our peace. And how does Jesus bring peace? Well, he destroys division by what? By being destroyed. Jesus killed hostility by how? By being killed. The only way that we can have peace is because Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. And this is what the cross does. It levels the playing field. Do you see this? The cross of Jesus, it levels everything. We are, I heard an old pastor say it this way, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Because here's what the cross reminds us, is that apart from Jesus, we're all sinners in need of a savior. Doesn't matter who you are, apart from Jesus, we're all sinners in need of a savior. And yet in Christ, if you've trusted with him, we become brothers and sisters. We become blood, we become family, we become one new man. Let me leave you with one final story. Leave you with one final story. In 1914, during World War I, there's a famous story of the Christmas truce at World War I. I'll give you a little historical context. World War I was trench warfare. And these guys would dig in and shoot artillery and bombs at each other, and they would just try to wait each other, it was a war, wait each other out. It was a war of attrition. And there's these incredible photos and stories of how on Christmas Day in 1914, historians estimate that about 100,000 British, French, and German soldiers stopped fighting and experienced peace just for one day. They said on Christmas Day, the artillery ceased, no more bombs, no more gunshots, no more firing. Instead, here's what the soldiers did. They erected Christmas trees, they lit candles, They actually started singing Christmas carols and extending Christmas greetings in their very own language. And slowly but surely, these soldiers actually started to venture out from over the trench and they met each other in what was called no man's land, which was full of craters and dead bodies and carnage. And they actually started exchanging gifts. They give each other food and tobacco and buttons and hats. You might've seen this picture. Uh, There was a few soccer matches right, that broke out. There's actually, you can read about this one American soldier who said, I smoked a cigar with the best sniper in Germany. I mean, that's the type of camaraderie and peace they experienced. Well, brothers and sisters, 
We are living, existing in no man's land right now. Aren't we? We live in a divided world that's drawn their lines, that are firing at each other. And here's what we see on the Christmas truth. Just thinking, singing, and caroling about the birth of Jesus, it brought peace, just for a day, to World War I enemies. My question for you is how much more How much more can the full gospel, that Jesus, his blood, not only makes us right with God, but right with each other, how much more unity can the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus bring peace to the world? See, you and I both know, as much as the the central and allied parties disliked and hated each other, there's actually a greater divide, there's a greater division that exists in our universe. It's the separation that sinful men experience from, from a holy God. And if Jesus can make us right, if Jesus can reconcile even me to God, he can reconcile any two parties, any two broken families, any two political systems, any two nations, any two races. The blood of Jesus can bring peace to the world. And as I put myself back into that Christmas day truce, if I was laying in that trench, I looked to my right, and I heard the Christmas carols, you know, coming over the trench. And I saw my buddy climbing over the trench saying, I want to go talk to these guys, be in relationship with these guys, get to know these guys. I would say, bro, you're crazy. Okay, I'm staying right here. I would say, why are you risking that to be in a relationship? Well, Jesus is that soldier, isn't he? Jesus says, I'm going first. Jesus says, follow me. I'll take you to no man's land. I'll climb over the trench. I'll sacrifice my life. I'll spill my blood. Follow me. Be eager to maintain unity in a divided world. Let me pray. Lord, I I feel like we're just so, we've got division fatigue. Seems like everywhere we look, things that we used to just talk about civilly, are now dividing families and churches and schools and teams. Lord, we're just so over the disagreements and the division. God, we long for peace, we long for unity. So Lord, I pray that we be men and women who reflect that this church is supposed to be one new man, a supernatural unity and bond that unites us people from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, and political persuasions. I pray that King's Chapel Church will be a demonstration of that supernatural unity. I pray that our church will be peacekeepers as we go into this city, this community, even the virtual world, that the community would know us by our love for each other. We pray this in your name, amen.